edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Uh, today's show is going to be great. It's episode 722. It is August 11th, 2011, and uh, we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects today, and that is permaculture, but it's not just going to be me telling you my thoughts on permaculture. I have one of my favorite permaculturists uh, standing by, waiting to bring him on the air to talk to you. His name is Bill Wilson. He runs Midwest Permaculture, where he does all things permaculture, including the vaulted PDC, or Permaculture Design Course. He also has a pretty cool way you can take that course. That course usually takes a really long time, and uh, it's a huge time commitment for people. So what they've done is they've uh, they've made it where you can get it done a lot quicker. I'll let him explain that later when I bring him on the line. But to me, permaculture is the solution. When I look at survivalism as a whole, uh, what I do is I start to look at it from my army mechanic days in a tr- as a troubleshooter. And I start to deconstruct all the things that are going wrong and could go wrong. And then I reconstruct ways to either prevent them from going wrong or to be prepared when they do go wrong if they're out of my control. When I look at permaculture, that's pretty much what I see. It's not just about growing tomatoes and potatoes. Permaculture is a way of thinking, a troubleshooting system that I'm going to have Bill tell you more about today. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day, number one today, MERS Radio, M-U-R-S hyphen radio.com. That's Rob uh, Belville over there, man. He's a great guy, and he really knows his product cold. And that means if you have a problem or you're trying to do something and you're not sure how to get it done, and you give Rob a call and say, I'm trying to do this with your equipment, he's going to go, here's what you do, or you can't do that. And you won't waste your time. And if you want to know before you buy what you can and what you can't do, if you call him and you ask him, he's going to tell you that too. Because by handling only a select a small number of equipment pieces, he's able to have each one completely dissected in his mind and help you do what you need to do with it. Now, what can you do with MERS radios? Well, they're unlicensed, so you don't need a license to operate like you do with ham. They only work for about a mile to two miles, in my experience. Two miles in a good flat area you get out of them. Um... So they're really a secondary communication system for like a complex or a neighborhood or a homestead or something like that. But what's really cool about them is they also integrate motion sensors so that you can use them as part of your security. So you blend security and communications into one. I think it's an awesome system. I use it around my homestead. I think you should consider it for your homestead too. Next up today... Safe Castle Royal. I call them the original survival podcast sponsor. When I had zero sponsors, the first company that said, hey, we will pay for a year of advertising on your show if you'll tell people about us and put a banner on your site with Safe Castle. And they're still here, and I don't think they'll ever go away. We have a wonderful relationship with Vic, and they do a great job of taking care of the audience. And remember, they're a huge supporter because not only do they uh, do they provide great service and great product to the community, uh, if you're part of the member support brigade, they have a discount buyer's club. You buy that from them directly any day of the week. You go by their site and buy it. It's 29 bucks. If you are 
MSB, you get it absolutely free. And then you get big discounts on everything they sell for the rest of your life. Isn't that cool? And what will you find there? Everything you need for your prepping. Long-term storage food, uh, tactical equipment, you name it, uh, 12-volt equipment uh, for your solar and wind projects. Whatever you're looking for, you'll find it at Safe Castle Royal. Next up today, remember, connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Best way to do that is go by the Survival Podcast. You'll see ways to link out and connect with me through those social media outlets there. Make sure you check out our gear shop. We do have really cool stuff and some more cool stuff on the way in the gear shop. Uh, you'll find those folks by going to uh, the Survival Podcast and clicking on the banner for the gear shop, strikingly enough. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. In addition to that free discount buyer's club from Safecastle, 29 other supporting vendors of the MSB offer you discounts. You get over $100 worth of free ebooks, and you support the show at a whopping $0.20 cents an episode. But... If you have served this nation in the capacity of law enforcement, military, or Peace Corps, uh, I absolutely will offer you a discount. Uh, you just need to email me first, tell me who you are, what you do, or what you did, when you did it, and kind of what your job was so that I know I'm not just getting someone that wants a discount that actually didn't serve. Uh, I got an email today from a guy that said, uh, I think I'm in law enforcement. I'm a game warden. Am I in law enforcement? Yeah, absolutely you're in law enforcement. Um, so if you qualify under those things before you join, please go ahead and, uh, and email me first. One more thing on the MSB before I bring Bill on. I want to remind you guys, I do take silver. I take silver, I take cash, I take checks, I take money orders, I take all forms of payment other than PayPal. Some of you guys don't like PayPal. Well, all you got to do is go to the site, and at the bottom you'll see pay by silver or pay by cash check money order. Click there, there's a form, you fill that form and send it in. When I'm running sales, folks, I'm not doing it today, but you can write a discount code on there and I'll do it for you. Those of you that want to pay by silver during a sale, if I'm doing 20% off, then I give you 20% more time. That's, that's how I handle the silver thing. And the same with the law enforcement stuff, military discounts and all. Whatever the discount is, you only find out if you qualify. I give you just more time because I can't discount silver. Like, say, cut your silver in half and send it to me. So I want to remind you guys, I do take silver for the MSB. Since silver's up in the 30s, I get a lot less silver for the MSB. But it's still a really good deal. It's how you can get a discount any day. If you've been kicking around joining the MSB, it's one ounce of silver for one year of MSB. That's 38 bucks a year. You can join for as many years as you want. Uh, with that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up, and I want to bring on our guest today, Bill Wilson from Midwest Permaculture. Bill is a really passionate guy about permaculture from the standpoint of actually solving problems. We were just chatting about that offline before I had the opportunity to bring him on. And uh, He's been on the show before. He's got a great operation up there at Midwest Permaculture, and he's here to tell us today about that and a lot of other things to do with the permaculture movement. Bill, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hi, Jack. Thanks a lot for having me on again. It's a pleasure. Hi. Um, I know I've had you on a couple times before, but I get new listeners every day. We've grown by about 10,000 of those people since the last time you were on. So for those that aren't familiar with it, with you, could you just give people a little bit of your background? Basically, you were a truck driver one day, and, and then it, it probably seemed overnight to those around you, you were this guy uh, teaching this, this thing called permaculture. How'd that happen? Well, I just kind of have had an interest in um, different aspects of sustainability. I'm interested in community. But I'm also, I think, like a lot of people, seeing the uh, culture and seeing what looks to me like a disintegration that's falling apart in many different places. And I stumbled upon permaculture um, uh, serendipitously about 15 years ago, picked up a magazine and started reading about it, and it caught in my craw. Uh, for me personally, um, I spent the first 20 years of my life kind of like an entrepreneur. I had a bunch of small little businesses and doing different things, but... Uh, when you're raising a family, I never had time to spend time with my, my children. And 
I kind of blew a gasket at age 40, and um, in order to just have some time alone so I could think, the only thing I could think to do to make a living and um, still have some time to myself was to drive a truck. So I went through an eight-week truck driving school in six weeks and um, ended up getting a job that took me out on the road four days a week, and I was home three days a week. So I thought I'd do that a couple of years until I kind of, you might say, found myself or, you know, found a sense of, of peace. And um, it took me longer to do that, and the income was good. So I actually drove for 13 years. It took me 10 years to find myself, as I say, and at 50, it took me three years to figure out how to get out of the truck and do what I feel is my work, you know, my, my life's work. And uh, that really is permaculture. That's how that's set up. Very cool. Um, you know, I, it makes me think of my days back in the car when I was doing the show in the car on a 50-mile ride, and I think there were a lot of years that I spent driving. And uh, I think people underestimate the value of that and sorting things out in your head. And I think a lot of people ask me today, where do you come up with all this stuff? And I'm like, that was 15 years of traveling around the country with nothing, nobody to talk to but myself. <laughs> and, and I do it's a little embarrassing, but, you know, you need time. You need time to think. You need time to put this stuff in order. And I, I use that time really wisely. I mean, I think I did. I, I turned my truck into, as I call it, a rolling sanctuary. I had a lot of books on tape. And, you know, something would spur my thinking or whatever. And I'd just sit there and I'd start thinking about something, I'd drive for two or three hours and I'd miss my exit, you know, I'm supposed to drop a load somewhere and pass my exit, so it, it was great, it, it was, it's a, it's a wonderful, it was a wonderful opportunity, but the thing that really captured me about permaculture is that I felt like there were these challenges before to the culture and I felt powerless on what to do, and um, you can do the simple things, you can prepare yourself, you can prepare your family, you can store food, you can learn to grow food and things, but on a bigger, bigger picture, I'm thinking, how are we going to solve this thing? And I took the permaculture design course in 2004, and I came out of that just stunned by the possibilities. The um, founder of permaculture, the gentleman who coined the term, is a fellow by the name of Bill Mollison out of Australia. And um, his uh, in the early days, of uh, he was uh, in the 70s, uh, he was uh, working for a university there uh, in the agronomy, agriculture, and soil sciences and uh, they were all excited because they were bringing industrial agriculture to Australia. And uh, their climate and their soils are a lot more fragile than they are here in the U.S. And he said, look, if we do industrial agriculture on this continent, we will destroy the fragility that we even have here. And they said, well, no, we're going to green Australia just like they greened America. So he, he had to walk off the job, and he spent two years thinking about how could we do agriculture and leave the soil in better condition year after year. And so he created this. He, he worked on it. He had some other people that he was working with. He studied indigenous cultures. And he coined that term and started publishing works and got other people involved, and it's grown from there. So he created this 72-hour curriculum uh, several years later, and that's the course that I took. And when I took that course, I told my wife, I said, Becky, this is it. This is the path. This is a way that we can structure how to build uh, a sustainable uh, permanent culture. That's how the, the term came about. So um, permaculture is about one-fourth about food and about agriculture and how you do that. But the rest of permaculture, which has excited me, it's also about the built environment. How do you build your houses? How do you build a house that lasts 500 years, not just 100 years, you know? How do you uh, get your water, and what do you do with it when you're done with it? How do you get your energy, you know, and are you able to, um, you know, get the energy you need from current sunlight rather than ancient sunlight? It's how you lay these pieces on your landscape so things are all working together. So, like, you can shade your house with trees 
and uh, pull cool air in from underground by having a stack on your roof that pulls hot air up, and you're pulling cool air in, and you can keep your house cool naturally by using the 55 degrees underneath our foot, our feet everywhere on the planet. So simple, obvious things like that. And it was real clear to me when I came out of my training that it is possible to build a very abundant future for everybody and do it without polluting the planet or consuming it. You know, we think so a lot. I got, of, I got so excited, I had to figure, I had to share it with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so you built your life on it. I think we think a lot alike, though. I was, I was a mechanic in the military, and I worked on the big types of trucks you used to drive. And what I learned in the military was that when something's wrong, you don't focus necessarily on just what's wrong. You troubleshoot the process to find the link in the chain where things are broken. And, and if you just go at the problem, it's like playing whack-a-mole. And I look at modern agriculture, modern modern economic systems, modern building, modern anything, and it, it looks to me like society is playing a giant game of whack-a-mole. When there's a problem, we just address that one problem, we never sit down and troubleshoot it. And when I looked at permaculture the first time, and I was trying to explain it to an old army, but he was also a mechanic, and he wasn't getting the stuff that he felt like was eco-hippie stuff and all, I said, it's troubleshooting. Yeah. And when I said that, he goes, oh, okay. you know. And then he started re re going back through all the things I'd already told him, and he said, okay, now I see what you're saying. It's taking this stuff and deconstructing it and finding a better way to get it done, or finding a way somebody did it 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 1,000 years ago. We forgot. I'm like, exactly. Troubleshooting is what permaculture is really all about. And it can go into the economy. I, I didn't even have this plan. I want to ask you this, though. It made me think of it. I just got a copy of Permaculture Magazine. My wife found it at some store here locally, the one out of the U.K., And there was a little, oh, yeah. there was a side bit in there this, this, this month that I'd never thought of before. And they were talking about building a new economy based on permaculture. And they said one of the things we should go to is like appliances and major purchases. We should go to a lease model where when you're done with it, it goes back to the manufacturer because that would do away with this planned obsolescence crap if they had to deal with it at the end of its life cycle. And that we're only leasing it anyway because if you buy a washing machine and it lasts five years, At the end of five years, it's gone. It's not like you bought it for the rest of your life. You've you've leased it for a price, and then you have to pay to have it carted off to a landfill or whatever. But if it went back to the company that made it, they would damn well see to it. And they even talked about this place in Denmark now where they build carpets to be leased, and you lease a carpet, and at the end of your lease term, they come tear it out and recycle it and make a new carpet out of it. Um, I don't know if you saw that or if you've heard anything about that, but I'm oh, not yeah, sold sure. on that, it, but it's, it's interesting. Yes. It's, it's definitely a, a step in the right direction, and that is, is, is putting responsibility, broadening, broadening this responsibility and looking at the true cost of what it takes to produce something like a washing machine, like you just said. You know, we don't look at the cost of, uh, of the damage we do to the um, ecosystems to get the materials we need to make the washing machine. We don't look at the damage we do when we, dis the, um, when we um, get rid of or... Um, Uh, take it to the dump, you know, we don't look at the, the expenses involved in that and the damage it does there. So by returning it to the source, it puts it on the manufacturer to make it so it lasts a long time, to make it so he can recycle all the parts or she can, so that it costs a lot less money to manufacture. He can recycle those materials. So it's, it's, it's brilliant thinking. And, and the other aspect of it, of course, has to do with just the levels of consumption that we have. Um, would it be great to buy a washing machine and last you the you know, rest of your life? You know, why not? Why don't we build them that way? I, I completely agree. I have to say one thing. Of all the appliances out there, these newer models, these front loaders, 
Uh, they seem to be built better than anything they've done since you know the days of uh, my grandmother had one that like sat in the sh in the shanty as we called it that was like ancient and it still worked and it seems like these newer yeah. ones do seem to be built better but there's still a lot of a lot of problems with the current manufacturing system. I just thought that was interesting. One of the things I wanted you to talk about today though is that there's a lot of people out there that are interested in permaculture, they're doing self-study, they're just practicing it in their own backyard. And uh, there's, the Bill, uh, Bill uh, Mollison is not like the word police. I, I've been going through his PDC on DVD out of Australia, and he said the biggest reason they trademarked the term was so the universities wouldn't screw it up. Because um, no, yeah, nothing right. screw things up faster than a university claiming ownership of it. Um, but there, there, you guys teach a permaculture design course where if a person takes that, they can then, if they're professionally conducting landscaping or whatever, they can call it permaculture once they've done that. Because the word is trademarked that way. It's not like Bill's going to have the Aussie police come after you for putting the word on your blog or something stupid like that. I'm going to study who else did that. But um, there's, there is a big advantage there, I think, even if you don't want to use it professionally into taking a PDC course. But it takes a lot of time. Yours is a little bit different the way you've set it up. It saves people the most valuable commodity time. Can you talk about how you've managed to condense this and save people time so they can actually get out, take the PDC, uh, and, and come out the other end of it with all this knowledge? Yeah, sure. It's, it was really simple. It just came down to the fact that, you know, it was hard for me to find the time to take two weeks to take my training. And so, um, and plus I remember too in my training, as good as it was and some great information, there was a lot of downtime in that training, and some people say, well, that's, you know, um, uh, integration time. You need some time to just kind of think about what you've been taught, and, and there's some value in that. But um, we just decided if we were doing some courses, Becky and I had, had some experience offering um, webinars. Some of these were online, either live or recorded webinars, and the feedback we had gotten from students was that they really liked them because they could sit down when it was convenient for them. They could listen to them over and over. They could take notes while they're listening. They could rewind the DVD or the tape a little bit and listen to it again. So we put um, about 15 to 20 hours on webinar. We did those live webinars, and now they're recorded. So when a person takes one of our courses, the first 15 to 20 hours is all done at their leisure, way before they come to the training. So by the time they come, they're already introduced to the major concepts. They're introduced to some of the juice about it. And then when they show up, we can spend more time doing hands-on things, more time doing exercises, less time doing lecture. And we do a training in eight days rather than the usual 12 to 14 days. I think another big advantage there is, let's say a person who, who, who's been studying this self-study for two or three years and finally saves up the money and the time to come there doesn't sit through uh, the first, you know, three days of class going, oh, gee, I could stand up there and say this stuff. Uh, and yes, I think exactly. there are people that I've, I've taken courses before where I've, you know, and you understand they have to start kind of at a basics and build everybody's understanding, but I'm, I'm thinking I could have showed up on day four and just started there. And I, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point, Jack. And so when people get here, what we like to do is, you know, say the stuff that you gotta see, you gotta touch, you gotta do, you gotta discuss. That's the stuff we say for the on-site portion of the training. We just did, I just finished a training last uh, uh, weekend, last Saturday, up in Madison, Wisconsin, and I asked the room, I said, um, you know, how many of you would not be here if this was a two-week training? And every hand went up except for one. <laughs> so um, it's nice. I mean, it's it's really a commitment in, in money. It's a big financial commitment that, you know, our courses run like twelve to $1,300. But a lot of people said, look, I can find the money. I just can't find two weeks. 
So we're we're happy to have this format for people to do. And I think the the most exciting thing for us is is the feedback forms we get when we uh, finish a training. We ask people to give us, you know, honest feedback. And you know, we've done 26 courses, Jack. And my hope and my sense of it is is that every course is a little better than the one before because you know if you're not improving, there's no point in doing it. I guess. So we continue to get really great feedback from people, and we really appreciate that. We, we we hope and we think we're delivering a real powerful training. Well, I know I took your uh, the, the the home part because I want people to know that too. They if they don't have the time or the money right now to get up there and do that, they can take just that home condensed course and become part of your community on Ning. But I took it, That's right. and then one of the benefits with of that was when you do the did a second one, you didn't try to resell it to me. You said, okay, here's the new version of what you've already paid for, and it did get better. It absolutely got better, and more information came in, and it was watching it a second time. I felt like I was watching it for the first time, so I know you're doing that. But for people out there that maybe have been self-study, sharing information on forums, doing stuff in their backyard, um, all great stuff. But can you tell them a little bit about the advantages of what you know? What does it what does it do to change your thinking and your processes when you actually go through a structured PDC course? Yeah, well, that's a good point, Jack. And, and I do want to be sure people understand this, and that is, you don't need a permaculture course to understand permaculture and to get the, the you know the the important pieces or the juice. The information is out there. Let's hear it for the Internet. Let's hear it for your show, Jack. I mean, you share a lot of really great information that's very permaculture. So, you know, I just want people to know it's it's not about if you don't get the training, somehow you're missing something. But what I can tell you is that what we do with our trainings is that um, me and the other structures that we have, we've gone through a tremendous amount of material, and what we do is pull out the juice. We pull out... The really, the stuff that really makes a difference and the stuff that really hits home. And so what tends to happen and what students tell us, I mean, these are students, some of these students are like PhDs at universities and they come and take our training and I'm saying, why are you here? You know, PhD and, and they, they lead the sustainability department at their college. And I say, why are you here? And they said, well, I think I'm missing something. And at the end of the week, they come out and they say, I was. Permaculture is an umbrella for, for all of this stuff. Permaculture is approach. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of looking at the world. And when if you look through the world through permaculture eyes, there is abundance everywhere. The challenge is we need to design to harvest that abundance. And so permaculture, our permaculture trainings, we just build on that. And at the end of a week, people come out and you just see the world differently. I don't know how else to explain it. Yeah, you know, you brought up something interesting there. Um... I was been mentioned. Uh, I bought this DVD set uh, out of the uh, Targus Institute, which is uh, Bill the Bill Mollison's, uh, I guess, information uh, publishing company, and it's 99% of it's Jeff and Bill lecturing. And as I'm listening right. to it, he Bill talked about doing this conference where they brought all these sustainability experts in, and the first thing he does when he walks in, he says, is he goes, okay, somebody define sustainability for me. And uh, there's you know about six or seven attempts, and he goes, okay, so now we've established that no of you, none of you know anything about sustainability, and that's a little gruffer than I would be, and that's just how Bill is. But uh, but it, it, I do think that you know, and that was right when he went into this point about how universities destroy things when they claim ownership of them, and that's why they won't let permaculture be owned by the university system uh, in any way, shape, or form. And I think there is a lot of things missing because how. 
well are you going to do with developing a sustainable format in a university without something like this as a is a kind of a sounding board and outside voice when 90% of your ag department is funded by ConAgra, Bayer and Monsanto. I mean, yeah. if you write the textbook, you control what the student learns and I think that there's a lot of that. I don't want to go off on a tangent there, but I think there's a lot of that in our university system today. Well, let's 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 just look at that cuz you you bring up a great point and that's this and that is it is the work it seems of universities to make a subject that doesn't have to be complicated but make it complicated so you have years of study, years of investment, and you agonize over details that really don't make that much of a difference. How many of your listeners have got a college education or even a high school education, and you sat through class after class, and you don't ever use any of that information? Maybe it broadened your horizons a little bit, but the bottom line is we make things too complicated. And Bill Mawson has this great quote, and actually that's on the home page of our website. He says, even though the problems before us seem increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple. And that is the truth. I completely I mean, let me just, agree. I, I actually, let, let me just run down this, this path just a little bit. Sure, go One ahead. One of the things that um, we look at, if you consider, like, what is the source of abundance? I mean, what is it that provides us with all of what it is that we need to be able to live securely and abundantly well. And, you know, we can look at, we can say, well, you know, I need so much money, you know, or something like that. But ultimately, when we drill down and we look at what are the things that we really need to be happy and the things we need to sustain ourselves, it really comes down to things in the physical world that provide food, shelter, clothing, and then in the non-physical world or in the social world, relationships, people you can trust, people that you care for, people that care for you, you create that sense of community. That's where security and abundance come from. All of that is available through what we would call the natural world or the plant world. We are animals walking around on the surface of this planet, and we evolved after the plants evolved. Everything we need to sustain ourselves. You want, to, you want an army and you want to dominate the world, you better feed that army. If you don't feed that army, you don't have an army. So ultimately, everything comes down to being able to feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, house ourselves. And all of that basically comes from vegetation and primarily trees. Most of this planet was a kind of a, a tree-covered planet. And that's where, you know, if you have a, a, a food forest, let's say, and it's producing all the food you need, you're also getting biomass, you're getting wood, you're getting fuel. The fuel you get, by the way, the wood you get is last year's sunlight, Right. It's not ancient sunlight. It's stuff that was stored in that tree not long ago. And what is it that makes a tree? You know, you take a look at a big tree outside, get in your car, back up, slam on the gas, run into the tree. Who wins? (laughs) The tree's going to be there. Your car is going to be crunched, all right? What made that tree? Where did that tree come from? It's solar energy. I mean, it it was a little teeny plant, a little twig in the ground. At some point, it grew into this massive thing. Where did it come from? It's solar energy. I I thought, you know, well, the root goes down and picks up a little element or, you know, molecule in the soil, brings it up, and that's what makes the tree. But we know, you know, in the natural world, what you see above the ground is what you also see below the ground. The root, the the mass of roots on the ground is equivalent in mass to the surface of the tree or to the above-the-ground tree. Absolutely, and to drive your point, if you drive your point home, if we take a flower pot and we grow something in it, 
Um, it's not taking the soil and turning it into, it's taking some nutrients there, but it's really using solar energy because if we weigh the flower pot, it gets increasingly heavier. So where right. did everything come from? That's exactly it. What it's doing is the plant is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, CO2, holding on to the carbon and letting go of the oxygen. Real abundance, where a tree comes from, real abundance, real security from the natural world comes out of thin air. It comes out of the the, ox, the air brought in by the tree. The carbon that you and I are breathing, that you and I are contributing, that's where real abundance comes from. So to get a tree to grow, you need water, you need soil. That's why we got to hang on to soil. You need sunlight, you need the tree, and then you need air. That's it. Everything we need to create all the abundance and security is available to us. I mean, I don't think Monsanto's patented the sun yet. No. I'm sure they're working on it, <laughs> you know, or the air. You uh, know, somebody's going to want to own the air. But uh, at this point, those things are still free. That's, I'll tell you what, Bill, Bill, the day they, they come up with the uh, Monsanto patent over air and sunshine is the day Jack uh-huh. Spierko rounds up the anti-Monsanto militia. Uh, yes. <laughs> that's my breaking point, <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, yeah, I'm afraid. So uh, they may tax solar panels at some day. If everybody goes to them, they'll have to get their tax dollars from somewhere, but uh, but they ain't going to patent it on my watch. <laughs> well, what's, what's exciting about what's possible in the future, and this, of course, is where permaculture starts, and that is everything we really need, we actually can design for that and we can create it. And once you create these things and you set them up and you build your house to last 500 years, and you put food forests in a, around and amongst your annual uh, food gardens, and you get the abundance of food, you've got your security of your home, you've got your neighborhood, it just doesn't take much to live. You can live abundantly well, and you don't need $50,000 a year. So, and, and, and even if you had people around you that were excellent doctors, and they were part of your community, you know, other than when you break your leg or, you know, something like that, you know, you don't really need the hospital. Maybe you don't need health insurance. Maybe we can provide the things. I mean, what did we do before we had health insurance? Yeah, we had a much better health care system. I think we had around a few decades. Yeah, I think we had a much better health care system. I remember when I was a really little boy, and uh, we never had health insurance. My dad was an entrepreneur like I am, and, and had his business. And we would go to the doctor, and it would cost about twenty to twenty-five bucks for a doctor's visit. And that was if they took a little blood, looked down your throat, gave you some, you know, and, and, and threw you some medication across the counter, and said, "Okay, here, fill this prescription, but this stuff you can have from samples." And people say, "Well, twenty-five bucks was a lot more back in nineteen seventy than it is today." But uh, today, the doctors from the healthcare provider end up getting about. Uh, $35, which is a hell of a lot less for the doctor, yep. and the patient ends up paying a hell of a lot more. So the doctor gets less, the patient pays more and gets less in return. Uh, so yep. what, what do we have in the middle? We have a system that's designed to make a profit uh, at the expense of both parties that are actually providing the service and spending the money. Um, and that's just anti-permaculture. And that's why I say this and people think I'm like just evil freak. We should outlaw health insurance. I don't even want it. I don't think it should exist other than like a catastrophic thing for people that end up, you know, with a long-term care need. Uh, and it would solve the problem overnight. And, and there's your Bill, Bill, uh, Bill Mollison uh, quote, the, the solution's remarkable or embarrassingly simple, I think is what you said. That's it. Yep. Well, hey, if, go ahead. Can I, one more thing, Jack. I just want to simplify permaculture one more, one more way, and that is because people have asked me, 
you know, how do you explain permaculture quickly and easily? So for your listeners who say, I'm kind of interested in permaculture, and someone says, what is it? Well, you came up with a, with a good solution, which is it's looking at the source of things, right? Yep. But another way to look at it is many of us were, as kids, were, you know, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or, um, you know, we've gone camping with our families. And when we come on to a campsite, our parents or our scoutmaster would say, now, kids, look around here, because when we leave this campsite, we're going to leave this campsite in better condition than when we found it. And that's all that permaculture is attempting to do. Imagine if each wave or uh, each generation of humans coming on this planet, you know, one of the things, our jobs is to suck tomorrow out of life. I mean, just let's just admit, living is a pretty amazing experience if you're awake. I mean, it's pretty fantastic. But one of the other things we have to do is we have to live in such a way that we all leave the planet in better condition than when we arrived. That's permaculture. How do we do that? How do we build our houses, get our energy, get our food, build our communities, so we leave the place in better condition than when we showed up? Yeah, you kind of That's jumped ahead on me ahead on me there because I wanted to talk about the uh, uh, the prime directive for a second. And of course, the the prime directive. If you're a Star Trek fan, it's this. Uh, non-interference clause in the Federation, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, Bill Mollison's uh, prime directive for permaculture, and I think it's pretty much saying the same thing. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. I think that that of our children is what makes this, it has to be a little bit better than the way we found it, because we can take responsibility for our own existence and say, well, we're going to live to an average of somewhere between 70 and 100 years of age, and as long as everything lasts till then, we can exist however we please. And unfortunately, I feel like that's how most people exist today. But as soon as you say, and for that of our children, well, now I have to leave it, uh, leave something for them. Of course, they have to leave something for their children because they're following the same thing. That's it. I mean, it really is. And in our Native American, you know, um, forefathers or brethren, you know, on this continent, I mean, that was their thinking. They said, well, with whatever decision we make here, we got to be thinking, you know, up to the seventh generation. That's a couple hundred years. How is that going to affect things, you know, 100 or 200 years from now? That's smart thinking. Blowing up mountains is not in no. very short term. No. No. Blowing up mountains and uh, strip mining coal and allowing the sulfur to leach into the, the streams. And I grew up in the coal region of Pennsylvania. I can tell you I saw streams that my grandfather told me uh, that in the fall when, when brook trout would basically swim upstream through them, they looked like salmon. And I looked at those streams and I wondered how – there could ever have been a fish in those streams. Then I went off to the Army, went down to Texas for a number of years, and finally visited my, my hometown after almost 20 years of absence. And some of those streams, uh, because of the Clean Water Act and things like that, and forcing the mining companies to go in and stop the drainage and all, they're now full of brook trout. And I'm like, well, how did they get there? And the answer was, we, we don't know. Nobody put them in there. They're native. And what it is mm -hmm. is the small little ones that had survived in the feeder creeks, and I used to go fish for these things, and you'd always let them go because they'd be four or five inches long because that's all that ecosystem would support. As soon as right. that water was clean, they went right back into there. I, I don't know that I would eat those fish yet today, but at least the healing process has begun simply because we stopped dumping And it wasn't like anybody was backing a truck up and dumping it in, but literally the practice was causing the dump, dumping of excess sulfur, and sulfur oxidizes, which, it, you know, it's rust. And, and that's what the rocks used to look like. They would be literally coated with an orange slime. So, you know, if you wanted a reason to get rid of coal, there's your reason. Uh, not to mention yeah. all that mercury in the tuna from the ocean, most of it comes from coal. 
You know, we, 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 we use an awful lot of energy, and we have to look at, you know, how much energy we use, and it's pretty staggering. And that's because it's been so cheap and available. So we really need to start looking at the real cost of energy, and that would change the way we use it. But, you know, I've got friends that use 90% less energy than the average American household, and they live just fine. You don't go to their house in the winter, and they're not freezing. You don't go to their house in the summer, and they're, you know, boiling or melting. You know, their houses are cool and comfortable, but they're built well. They're built low into the ground. They've got really thick walls in them. They've got one solar panel that, you know, feeds what they need. So we can design this stuff. And there are really very nice modern buildings being designed now that are approaching zero energy costs, you know, where they generate as much energy as they consume. So we can do this. We can design these things. And we don't all have to go back to caves and, you know, teepees or anything. But we have to make the choice to do that. And I think and I, and you, your your example of the of the creek is very encouraging, or the river, Jack, because the natural environment wants us to win. The natural environment wants to return to a very stable and abundant system, and it's doing everything it can to get back there. That's what we call weeds. <laughs> that's what the farmer calls weeds, you know. But that's really the natural system saying things are out of whack. We've got to save ourselves. We've got to save the land. So nature will work with us. We have to work with nature. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. Now, now, now I sound like a tree hugger, but no, you know it works. You know, no, just the way how it works. See, and I think that's a big a bad rap that permaculture gets. There's a lot of like the uh, eco bush hippie type uh, association with it, and I don't have anything against eco bush hippies until they get in my way. Uh, up until then, mm-hmm. they can do whatever they want. But I think that I think people need to understand where the source of this comes from, uh, the guy like Mollison, this guy is a guy that used to go out and, and, and hunt game. I mean, he talks about being a carnivore all the time. He talks about the fact that animals can better utilize certain plant systems than we can and convert the, what we cannot eat grass into protein that we can consume. So it's it's not like this is all a bunch of vegans sitting around contemplating their navel singing Kumbaya. To me, this is one of the most uh, manly topics we could ever have, if you want to put it that way. Uh, actually taking responsibility for ourselves. I mean, there was a time when that was like a main message to our young men in America. The biggest thing you got to do, take responsibility for yourself, your family name, and your family. And one day you're going to be a dad and you have to do that. And to me, that that is the prime directive of permaculture, taking responsibility for yourself. And I don't know when that became a hippie topic. I, I've never heard a lot of hippies going, yo, man, if we would all just take responsibility for ourselves, it would be much better. <laughs> right? That's not a hippie topic. I don't, I don't even get how it gets in there except for it's all about, you know, growing things and not using toxins. And, and I guess yeah. that's the, you know, and I'll take a friend wherever I can get it, whether it's a hippie in California or a big game hunter up in Maine. I'll take all the friends we can get, but it, it's really about fixing these problems and then doing it, and I wanted to kind of chat with you about the three ethics and some things about that and some misunderstandings, I think, in that hippie community on the last one. But starting off with care of the earth. I mean, if people hear that and they hear this hippie message, but it, we only have one of them, right? That's nice look. That's it. <laughs> we got one earth. And we do have to take care of it. We have to remember that, you know, we, you know, we are human and we do have – some of us believe we have some, you know, a, a connection to a spiritual side of the world that most of us can't see, but we feel like there is a connection. So maybe there is some divine guidance or what have you. But still, we reside in an animal body. You know, it's our carriage, if you will. It's the horse we ride. And our animal body requires the plant kingdom and other animals for our bodies to survive and to be able to take care of them. So face it, we better take care of the thing that nourishes, nourishes us, and that's the planet. 
Yeah, I've never understood. That's all it is. That's what Care of Earth is. It's just about maintaining something, caring for the gift that we were given. Yeah, and I've never understood. I, I have heard some people kind of use the, the spiritual argument against that, like, well, you know, since it's really we have eternal life and it's spirit, this doesn't matter. Well, then why is it here in the first place? I, I think the more spiritual you are, the more respect for the gift that we have in front of us you should have. Um, and it, it strikes me as odd that some people see that way. And then I think then the other thing that happens is that people look at this from the outside, and there's a lot of people that are concerned about concepts like eugenics right now, and they say, oh, this care of the earth thing is valuing the earth more than people. But the second ethic is care of people. So that, that pulls that back, and that means that we have to take care of ourselves and those around us. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, and it's really not set up either. It's not intended to be this kind of thing where, you know, there's people starving all over the world, and somehow we have to go and send food to them. You know, it's, it comes right down to the whole premise of we have got to, we have got to do what we can to support others in finding ways to sustain themselves where they live. It is not sustainable for us to grow corn and beans and whatever in Illinois and ship them to uh, third world countries or places where, um, you know, there's just, uh, their entire culture has been destroyed. And, and unfortunately, many times the culture has been destroyed by corporations coming in and buying up land and, and making changes and, you know, turning perfectly sustainable landscapes into annual agriculture and displacing large populations. That's just one example. But this whole thing of care of people has to do with, just as we have a sense of reverence for the planet, we do have a, have a sense of reverence for one another. And it is possible to set up systems where we can all have what we need. We're not talking about everybody having two cars. We're talking about everybody having a roof over their head, having food, having sustenance, having a safe place to be. That is possible to do. And that's what our parents provided for us, right? Didn't your parents provide you with a roof over your head and clothing and food and shelter? You got to pay for it when you were four years old, right? Well, there are cultures that have been destroyed, and for one reason or another, and maybe within their own culture they destroyed it, but it is possible to set up a culture whereby everybody has a house, everybody has food, everybody has clothing, everybody has community. And from that, we start experiencing and finding where can we make our contribution. But, yeah. um, we got a long way to go. That's a, that's a tough, that's a sensitive topic. It's not about giving a lot of stuff away, you know, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. It's about finding a way to share the abundance that does exist on the planet. No, I completely agree because the problem with the take from the rich and give to the poor is someone has to do that. Somebody has to be the Robin Hood, and then the Robin Hood is the government. And then if I take yeah. from the rich and I give to the poor, well, who has the power? Do the poor? Does that empower the poor? No, it empowers Robin Hood, right? And, 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 I mean, and, and that just, that, like you said, it's not sustainable anyway, because if I take from the rich long enough and hard enough, they'll say, screw it, I'm going to go over here and be poor, and I'm going to get on the receiving end of this stuff, or they'll opt out. They'll John Galt on us, where if we actually go in and teach people, and what, what this is making me think of, and you know, this is my youthful ignorance back as a teenager in the 80s, there was this guy, Sam Kennison, who was a hilarious comedian, but he had this bit about people starving in the desert, and he was like, He goes, you know, he goes, sand, nothing grows here, you know, go, go where the food is. And back then I thought that was funny. And now I look at it and go, no, it's, that's, that's really not funny. I still get the humor for God's sakes. But what I think of now is you, you had this vision when that guy was doing that of like the, the great Sahara with there's not even a tree in sight for a million miles. And then you learn that, you know, there is that part of the Sahara that's always been that way. But then there's all of this area ringing the Sahara where these people, the reason they're there suffering is it didn't used to be a desert. It was like a, a desert edge and there was productivity there. 
And then you get a guy like we were talking about before the show started, Yakoba Sakadoa, who, who goes, I probably got his last name wrong, but this guy I really idolized after learning about him, goes out there and just starts digging holes and filling them with cow manure and organic material and turns what was you know man-made desert now into man-assisted forest. And that will solve the problem for those people uh, where the the the... the the socialist-minded would say, well, we should take all the rice we have in America that's surplus and send it to them. Well, that'll solve their problem for, what, a, a couple months? And, and right. now they're beholden to me, right? Now they want, and of course they want more. I want more, too. If you gave me something once when I run out, I expect you to give it to me again. But if I can empower them, then they don't need me anymore. They need me to help them. I'm teaching them a fish rather than feeding them a fish. Yeah, abundance comes from the natural world. It is there. And we can take most systems and turn them into very productive systems, even like the gentleman in the desert. You know, the desert wasn't that big. It's been, it's been expanding. You know, matter of fact, Middle East was once a very fertile area. I mean, they say that's where, you know, the birth, one of the birth experiences of the place of the human experience, the Tigris and the Euphrates, very fertile area. But, you know, when you do annual agriculture and you expose the soil year after year after year, you may not see much in 10 years or 20 years, even a generation or two, if you're caring for it, but sometime you open up that soil and you get that torrential rain right after you've prepared the soil for your seed and you can lose one or two or three inches of topsoil in one rain event. And you do that over several hundred years and you lose all your topsoil, you lose the ability to have even a civilization in that space. And that's what we've done. You know, the, the North American continent, maybe we talked about this last time, but since, you know, Europeans came over, we started, you know, I'm not dissing the European, I'm just talking about what is, and that is since we put the plow on this continent, we've lost 50% of the topsoil on the North American continent. And our, you know, number one export in terms of volume, in terms of truckloads or boatloads, is not corn in this country. Our biggest export is topsoil. And it goes right out the mouth of the Mississippi River. They say if you loaded all the topsoil, this is the U.S. government, the USDA says, all right, and I got a leak on my website to this where this, where I got this, if you put all the topsoil we lose on an annual basis, one year, into rail cars, like coal cars, they ask the question, how long would the train be? And I'm thinking, gosh, what if the train went from Chicago to New York or something? They said the train would wrap around the globe seven times. It, that, that staggers the point. I, I learned that. in one year. I, I learned that in your course, and it just absolutely dumbfounded me. And I, yeah. I started to understand. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I, I really can't. It's it, it, it's impossible to comprehend, and it, it makes me re, re, you know finally realize what I was looking at. I would come out in the in the windy part of the summer in Texas. We get they shouldn't call Chicago the windy city. They should call Dallas the windy city. Honestly, uh, the wind we get uh -huh. in, in the early summer is amazing. But I would come out, I'd look at my pool, and a guy just cleaned it yesterday, and then all along the bottom of the pool is dirt. Not leaves, not debris, dirt. And it looks like good brown dirt. And, you know, I'd have to clean that out of my pool over and over again. Well, it's, it's topsoil from West Texas where these farmers are plowing during that time of year, going up into the atmosphere and coming down either just from coming down in the wind or coming down in rain and ending up in my pool. Well, if that much ends up in my pool... How much of it's going away that way all the time? It, it, and and, and that, was the, that was the first time in my mind I made the link after taking your course between that concept and where that stuff in my pool was actually coming from. Yeah. And that's what's so, so heartbreaking about this whole thing is that, you know, it doesn't really matter, you know, how we treat one generation to the next. Uh, I mean, how we treat one another. But when you remove topsoil and you don't have topsoil anymore, 
I mean, now you, you've destroyed the ability of the next generation to be able to sustain themselves. You know, so that, that's, that's, the, that's the sad part about this whole thing. But what, what's really ironic is it's possible to grow massive amounts of food and build topsoil at the same time. We know how to do it. They're called food forests. Uh, even things like uh, biodynamic farming uh, or biointensive farming, John Jevon's book, How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible. Great book. Very simple. Annual gardens, you know. But you're building topsoil at the same time as you're growing massive amounts of food. It, it starts, with, and that starts with two things. One, polyculture, not just growing one thing, because different plants mine different things from deep in the soil. And the other thing is not getting rid of all the part you don't use. I mean, it, it, I, I never understood how bad it really was. I always knew there was something wrong with when you'd see these photos of like primitive farmers in, in weird parts of the world, and and they would have their harvest of their crops, and they would take everything they could get, and then they would pile everything else up and burn it. And, and I'll, you know, as, as a young kid that learned, that learned to garden from my grandfather who spent more time shoveling things into the soil and taking things away, I knew that was wrong, but until I really educated myself on it, I never realized how wrong it was and what the consequences were and, and why places like Australia today, basically they've salted their own earth. And the salt was always there, but they removed the native de- vegetation that dealt with the salinity, monocropped, eroded the topsoil, floated the salt up with, with irrigation, and the next thing you know, you have salted earth, and your fresh water is now turned to salt water in your streams. Well, that only happened because we went in and did something without understanding the system before we changed it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and the only thing we're doing in in, in in gardening systems, and you know, maybe people think it's you know not very clean to take all your weeds and stuff and compost them or put them back in your soil, but that's your carbon. Your plant on your land collected CO2 or carbon out of the atmosphere. That's your carbon. And what makes soil really wonderful stuff? It's the organic matter. It's the carbon that brings soil to life. It's the bacteria in the soil that provides the nutrients for the plants. And you've got to feed the bacteria, and the way you do that is put plant matter back into the garden or manures. That's why animals are so valuable in a permaculture system, because they produce fabulous stuff called manure. Besides meat, meat's pretty good too. <laughs> yeah, meat is awesome. I mean, and I, that's part of the you know care of care of people, care of the earth is that all living things have value. That everything yeah. that's alive has an intrinsic value. And that doesn't mean that we look at a chicken and go, he's valuable, so he he has to be put on a chicken pedestal or something. He's valuable because well, he's a living creature, so there's an inherent worth. He's valuable because he has certain outputs, manure, which helps with fertility. Eggs, which are a high-quality source of protein. And then my favorite, drumsticks, thighs, and wings on the grill. And and that chicken serves that purpose in our world. And if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, and I understand that there's protein too, I'm totally okay with that. But that, you know, the reason the chicken exists in its current form is so that it could be a companion to man in those capacities. There, there's not a lot of, when you go out to like a national park and you're looking at bald eagles and egrets and stuff like that, you don't see a lot of chickens. Right, running around. Yeah. The chicken is designed, actually, is one of the first permaculture creatures, in my view, that ancient man figured out we could work with this native bird and turn it into this thing, and we could get a bird that would be a man companion that would do all this wonderful stuff. And then at the end of that period of time, we could eat it. And maybe, you know, I, and I even, I was a kid, and we had chickens, and we even had like one or two that were like old birds that, you know, if you ever did slaughter them, they would, you know, you take 10 hours in a crock pot and all, and they were kind of like a pet. You know, that was like a chicken that outlasted all the other chickens. But you, know, you can appreciate that animal and still understand that it has a place in the food chain. 
And the same people who go, I can't believe you kill your chickens are out eating McNuggets. So, you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like the guy, the two guys go into a restaurant in, in New York, and uh, the specialty for the day is a tongue sandwich. You know, they slice beef tongue into, into you know, supposedly it's a delicacy. It's good so stuff. The guy said, yeah, you know, give, give me the beef, give me the tongue sandwich. And his buddy looks at him and says, oh, my God, that's so disgusting. How can you eat something that comes out of an animal's mouth? And the waiter says, well, sir, you don't have to have that. What would you like? He says, I don't know. He says, just give me an egg salad sandwich. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's very subjective, isn't it? You know, but, you know the other thing about uh, just uh, on, the, on the chicken thing, Dak, I'm glad you brought it up. You know, in permaculture, we look at, well, what are some of the other qualities or the other things that we can do with chickens? And, you know, a lot of permaculturists will develop their gardens and set things up. And when they're ready to clean their garden up at the end of the year, they want to clean it up in the spring. They turn the chickens loose on it, and the chickens go in and they tear everything up. They work your soil. They poop all over the place, and they basically do an awful lot of gardening work for you. Um, the other thing you can do with chickens, if you winter them over, you can actually build a very tight greenhouse so you don't have air blowing through it. Design it so you get maximum solar gain, and you can store chickens in the north side or provide a roosting area for them in the north side of your greenhouse. And at night or during the day, they give off CO2 if your greenhouse is closed up. The CO2 is beneficial to plants, and they also give off heat. Uh, if you have enough chickens in your greenhouse, they'll keep your greenhouse above freezing. Even when it's zero degrees outside, if you've got enough chickens, they'll keep it above freezing, and you won't freeze off your plants. You know, in mollusks, so there's just other creative ways to use a chicken. You know, in Mollison's PDC course, he was talking about how uh, basically, he really pushed hard to make that a mainstream concept, and the, he said the Americans have done a better job of utilizing and running with this this than than we have over here. Um, and he was like, they, he said they do this all the time in America now, and it, basically he was kind of lip whipping his uh, his Australian brethren and saying, you guys need to get off the pot and figure out, hey man, if I put wow. a chicken, you know, and it was it was pretty. It's actually if, if you don't have that in your collection, it would be worth getting. The shipping's insane on it, but. Uh, to, to get some of the, because you know he's getting a little older, and I think he's a little more free with his thoughts now. And some of the pearls of wisdom that come out of there, he was he was talking about how the eco fascists want to turn everything back to natives, and you know he he said my solution to the eco fascists are they should be fed nothing but native plant life uh, for the rest of their lives because that will kill them quicker than anything else. And yeah, you know, very I mean, good how solution. many people live on elderberries and uh, uh, groundnuts? And it, you know it's yeah, not that you can't, but it's it's tough to do. And, I mean, I like Lawton as well because his big thing is, you know, improving on nature is fine as long as you work with it instead of against yeah. it, you know. I wanted to get make sure yeah, we get to the last ethic, too, though, uh, which is return of surplus. Because I had no idea there was a misunderstanding about this at all until I discovered Paul Wheaton's forum, uh, permies.com. And there is yeah, a, there's a segment of that community that believes that if I get a hold of a PDF of the, the permaculture design manual, that, that, you know, I can't imagine how much money went into producing that. And, and, and instead of like saying, hey, you can, uh, you can go buy this somewhere, if I just freely give it to the community and basically steal intellectual property, I'm returning surplus. I'm practicing the third ethic. And, and when I heard that, it like horrified me. That's the, the return of surplus includes a component that's profitable. And when you look at Lawton's work and in going into these, these third world communities, he always is saying that not only do these people have to be able to feed themselves, but they should be able to sell the surplus into their local community. So return of surplus isn't, okay, I've grown a whole bunch of tomatoes, and it can be I'm giving some to my neighbor, but it's not, that's the only way to do it. 
Correct. Correct. You, everybody has to be able to receive a yield. One of the things that we found is that when you have an excess of anything and you put it all in one place, what does that typically become? You know, in, in, in the physical world, it becomes pollution. In other words, you get this big pile of stuff and it starts to rot and whatever. Eventually, it breaks down and it'll return to the world, but it's basically pollution. In the economic world, it basically shows up in the form of money, right? But actually, it also pollutes, and it pollutes in the way that it takes advantage of other people or the way that money ends up swinging uh, the direction that things go. If all the money is in a corporate pot or in people with just a few people who control it, they can decide what happens to everybody. They can control the airwaves. They can control a tremendous amount. That's a form of pollution. When you take something that's not true and you force it upon a population, that's pollution. All right? So that's all that that's all that, that ethic is saying is that we have to have enough distribution so that there's no longer the situation where one person or one entity can can lord it over everybody else. And that's all that that means. That's what that is about. I agree, and I think we also need part of that is decentralization. If it, if every person out there were to plant enough in their own yard and on their backyard, or if they live in a community, create you know with apartments, create community. If everybody out there could produce at least two to two to ten percent of their own food, it would decentralize that concept of power, and there'd be all types of abundance and all types of exchange. And I think what people don't understand about money is money is infinite. It, it really is. It, it's because it's value, and that money is actually created through exchange. That's actually what makes money money. Like people say, I, I got all these people you know, in the survival community that believe like gold is money and paper is not. Well, gold isn't even money. The agreement between, like, if you and I said, if I said, Bill, you want to, you want to advertise on my show, and you said yes, and I said, well, I'll take gold from you. Our agreement that we'll take gold in exchange creates the money. If if we agree to something else's money, that becomes money. So if 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 I were to say to you, you know what, I want to come take your PDC course, uh, but but I don't have enough money to do it, and you said I'll take advertising exchange, advertising becomes the money. Well, when you go to your neighbor who had a bad year with tomatoes but a good year with potatoes and say basket for basket exchange, the food became money. And the more we produce, the more we have to exchange, and the more abundance everybody has and that return of surplus is about developing the local economy so it's not dependent on a global economy or a national economy that's that's just how i see it very well said jack brilliant can you come and teach at my next course i would be i would be absolutely honored to to come up to your place anytime <laughs> bill anytime honestly yeah but what you just is very simply very simply and eloquently just basically explain how things work you know, and that's all permaculture is asking. Permaculture is not asking. It doesn't have a political agenda. Some people think it does, but it does not. All that permaculture asks is, what is? How do things work? What's working? What's not working? Then how do we do the things that work, and how do we improve upon those, and how do we fix the things that don't work? And that's all it's saying. There's no judgment against anybody on this. We're just asking, how does it work? How do we do it? What is the source of all of this stuff? And how do we align ourselves with what exists? There are patterns that exist in nature, and they exist everywhere. There are certain patterns that the way things work. That's all we're asking. That's all we're doing, saying, how does it work, and how do we do this? And if we will follow these patterns, if we will follow um, the abundant stream, if you will say, the abundance that lies around us, we can create incredibly prosperous cultures, incredibly prosperous and have so much abundance and security, it's unbelievable. 
you know, you know now, now we head back into the, uh, you know, into the religious a little bit, but, um, you know, one of those good books said something, you know, neither do the lilies of the field toil or something into that effect. It is possible for us as humans to create a very abundant culture to the point that we can work about two or three hours a day to provide for everything we need, including our, you know, shelter clothing and food and um, security and have the rest of the time to do whatever we want, to do whatever pleases us and whatever allows us to create abundance around us. You know, I, I, it makes me think of this story that I heard, and I can't remember the exact details, but I think it was actually from one of Mollison's lectures that I got a hold of, like a transcript of. And he was talking about how this one guy in some tropical island somewhere that was overseeing the agricultural stuff basically planted a food forest, and in no time at all, this one little piece of this island fed the whole island. And then it was a problem in their minds because the main source of um, economic activity on the island itself was growing food. So all the people mm -hmm. that were growing food didn't need to grow food anymore. And I'm thinking, well, that's not a problem. Why don't we put the – now that we've figured out that this permaculture stuff works, <laughs> why don't we take all these people that we don't have to worry about filling their bellies anymore – Let them produce surplus that they can export because there's other places where you can't grow a mango or what have you that would like to have a mango. So that surplus can still be used. And they'll take some segment of this labor force and start applying permaculture to their housing. And eventually if you do that with housing and energy and food and water, then, okay, well, maybe people aren't employed 40 hours a week, but who the hell decided that it made sense for all of us to work for 40 hours a week? It sure as hell wasn't me. I think Lawton said something like a, a sustainable farmer should work about four hours a day maximum. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, yep. I, I just see that, like, every time you, you bring up a solution, the people that want to hold on to the old world thinking say, oh, that's a problem because it'll change this. Well, change is a good thing. I don't fear change. I mean, I fear some changes, like, you know, what's going to happen to our economy in the next 10 years because it's not sustainable. But when it comes to, to, to change, meaning solving a problem, I never fear that change. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and it, it really is possible to create this stuff. It really is possible to create that kind of abundance. We're literally, you know, we're just working three or four hours a day. And then and the rest of the time is, you know, for family and for our own purposes for, you know, educating ourselves or enjoyment, whatever. So it is true. It is possible. It's just that we don't see those examples. They're, they're hard to find. You know, we, you know, we, right now we said, no, the only way you get to do it is both mom and dad both have to work 60 hours a week just to bake it. You know, well, that's what we've created. You know, we've created a culture that says certain things and looks a certain way, but it is just a creation. It's something that whether we've agreed to it or not, it's what we co-created. But it is just a choice. It is, it's, it's as much an illusion as it is reality because we could change it if we wanted to. But enough of us have to be willing or interested in changing it. And we're just not there yet, not as a culture. We're still asleep. Mostly as a culture, we are asleep. The good news it feels is to me like, it, it feels to me like we're on the Titanic. Yeah. I, I do think people are waking up. I mean, there, there's there's thousands of people doing this now. This is an idea, I guess, his time has come. I just had some folks on the show earlier this week that I think you would love. They're called the Urban Farming Guys, and they're in Kansas. Oh, I know those guys. They're out in Missouri. Is that where they're yeah. in Kansas or something? Yeah, yeah. 20 families. follow their website. Yeah, 20 families that are basically practicing permaculture on a neighborhood level and changing the neighborhood just by showing up, being there, and doing things and empowering people. And there, there's little things like that going on over, so there's hope all over, but there's, so there's hope. But there's still the mass majority of people are blinded to the fact that any of this stuff even exists. 
And it's very hard for them to pull themselves out. Not everybody can take, you know, a sabbatical and drive a truck for three years. I guess they can, but they don't even know that they need to. And I, I would say that maybe two years before you knew you needed to, you didn't know you needed to. So it, it, we, if we take 70 years, 100 years to put people into a collective, collective delusional sleep, it's unreasonable to believe that we can wake them all up, at least all of them, you know, in, in three, four, or five years. Generally, it takes as long as it takes to put something in place to deconstruct it and tear it down. I guess there are those of you, us like you and I and many of the people listening to the show, we'll, we'll take the red pill and decouple from the matrix overnight if we have to. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah. most people aren't ready for the shock. Yeah, well, you're you're right about that, and I, I do I do I do see the signs too that people are waking up because it's kind of hard to ignore the fact that things are falling apart pretty rapidly. So I mean, and I think this is one of the exciting things about this time that we're living in, and that is that the internet is available. I know I wouldn't be in business if it wasn't for for the internet. I'm guessing the same is probably true for you. I, I couldn't so, do nothing the without internet. You know, I mean, there's no yeah. such thing as a podcast without an internet to distribute it on. That's right. So, so here's Jack Spurko doing this, doing his thing, you know. And here you are able to develop an audience, and now here you are able to inspire people. I had a um, a woman at uh, the training we just did last week, and um, man, she just couldn't stop talking about how much she and her husband love your show and how you guys have changed their lives and how you've turned things around. You know, help them see their priorities, and you just did it. Because that's who you are, and you have the vehicle by the internet. That's something that still hasn't been claimed, and I'm sure Monsanto's trying to figure out a way to claim that too. But now the anti-Monsanto militia will suit up the day that happens too. I mean, I, yeah, I'm yeah. a peaceful warrior, yeah. but I am a warrior, and there are places I won't be crossed. And that's another one that I'm, I'm not letting go down on my watch. But uh, man, I, I, I do feel a lot of encouragement, and I mean, hearing stories like this listener that just took your course, that. That makes all of, we were talking, you and I, about how much work both of us are doing right now and how you're looking for balance and, and I am as well. And, but that makes, you, you hear that and you go, okay, well, this is worth it. You know, when you get an email from someone that says, you know, I, I came back as a, a, a disgruntled veteran and had a gun to my head one night in bed and eventually started putting my life back together and you're part of that. I mean, that makes it worth it. And I think that most of us don't realize that that gun's all of our heads right now. And, I think this is why, if you look at, like, again, I keep bringing the names of a lot and Mollison, uh, Holgram, all of these guys, when they go into third world communities where people are starving and they say this works, they don't get any resistance at all. They get really show me and they do it and food comes out of it. And then the next thing you know, that entire community is going, okay, this food comes out of this because they've been stripped down enough to see their vulnerabilities. They're not living the way we are in the first world where we've wrapped ourselves in this cocoon, cocoon of delusion that says, I don't have to worry anymore. Everything will be okay. If the market goes down, Ben Bernanke will fix it. If, if, if there's a hurricane, it's either the president's fault or the per president will fix it or, or whatever. They, you know, when you're stripped of that, you, you start to realize that, hey, if this will grow me a potato and I didn't have a potato yesterday, this is something important. And I'm hoping that our societies will begin to figure that out before we have to be stripped down so that we'll, you know, be kind of forced by nature to see the wisdom of nature. Yeah. You know, you said one other thing, Jack, that, you know, we're talking about the third ethic, which is paraphrased many ways. One of us, you know, um, share the surplus. Another way to say it is, uh, care of people, care of planet, care for the future is another way to say the third ethic. But it has to do with this, this, this idea of sharing, Jack. You know, the work that you're doing and being on the radio, it's you sharing what's true and dear to you and to your heart. 
and being willing to just get up and keep doing it week, day after day, all right? This feeds us. You know, this is a, the act of sharing is the work that you're doing. And it is something that really is something all of us want to do. All of us feel great when we have something to give or to share to others. And that's really what that ethic is about. But, you know, when somebody takes something from us, it's no longer sharing. I mean, really, that feels more like um, thievery, you know, or, or theft. Um, all of us, have, you know, we feel good when we have something to give to others. We want to share. It's just part of our makeup. We feel more human when we are in a position to be able to give something to other people. And that's what that ethic is about, allowing ourselves to experience what it's like to share abundance. But if we don't have abundance, we, don't, we can't share it. And what's ironic is some of the people with the most money in the world and the most, the biggest houses and the most, the biggest bank accounts have no idea how to share. They have no idea what it feels like to really give something, really something authentic and something real. All it is to them is probably buying exchanges or something. So it's not really the amount that you give. It's a state of being. It's a state of awareness. And it's just a state of, um, of kindness. It's a state of reverence. It's a state of caring for something more than ourselves. It feels <laughs> That's why I'm glad you're doing your work, Jack, because that's what it feels like to me, that you're coming from your gut on this one. You're coming from your heart. What I was going to say, though, is it may, what you're saying is making me think of something I said way back in the in the uh, the beginning days of survival podcast when I did a show on you know the problems with socialism and what I said is sharing can only happen between equals and that doesn't mean that you and I have to have the exact same status in life for us to be equal but if we're going to share I have to value you as a human being and have to give completely freely on my own free will because I believe you have value and you you're going to receive it likewise you have to see me as just another human being who has chosen to share with you and while you might have gratitude, you cannot be left with a feeling of debt. If I leave you in a, with a feeling of indebtedness, I have in some way changed you, changed you to me. And I've in some way enslaved you, even on a very small level, where you feel that you must repay that to me. And that, that's not sharing either. One is somebody taking it without asking, and the other one is me giving it for specific return or creating obligation. None of that is sharing, and government cannot create sharing. It's impossible because it's always done that way. When human beings value each other and see you, each other as equals, sharing is a absolute most natural process that could ever occur. And if you look in any society, when a person is welcomed into that society, what is the first thing that most societies do when a guest comes to their society? They do what? They sit down and they feed them. Right? It's the, and it might be an impoverished society, and they will put out the best food they have, and they will share something precious because it's innate if you're seen as an equal to share. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. And it's, it feeds us. It really does. It's, a, it's an act of being authentic and real and being alive. It's a part of being human. So it's in us, and let's find a way to do that too. Well, folks, I hope you're learning something new about permaculture today. This is why I brought Bill on. We always Half of this show is the scripted things I'm going to ask him, and half of it is what just comes out when two people get together and talk about something they're passionate about. Um, Bill, I, I really appreciate you being here today, and I, I want folks to know that uh, if you're looking to learn more about permaculture, Midwest Permaculture is a great place to do just that. Thank you very much, Jack. It's a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to uh, meeting some more of your listeners. It's uh, It's been fun to have people come and say, oh, I'm here because I heard from Jack Sturka. <laughs> so I look forward to having you up sometime. 
I, I am going to make it happen. I'm going to figure out a time on the calendar, and I'm going to get up there for one of your courses because uh, it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. Just as we talked about in the beginning, I've been time-strapped this, this summer with the move and all, but it will happen, and uh, it will be an honor to, uh, to meet you and put my hand in your hand and shake your hand. Well, it'd be great to meet you as well, Jack. So thanks a lot, and thanks to your listeners for for um, for listening to you. Not not just you know, there isn't a person out there listening that is just following you along like a little puppy. But the point is, in order to listen to you and to listen to what it is that you have to say, these are people that had to have woken up, woken up, and are willing to question the culture that surrounds them. And right off, right quite honestly, that takes courage because there are people in their own families and people around them that don't even know what they're thinking or what they're talking about. So they're not alone or you're not alone. Uh, you know, we're all waking up and we're realizing there's got to be a better way to create this culture. So thanks for the work that you're doing on that behalf, Jack. Absolutely. And I can tell you that the biggest reward from this show, and I want to thank the audience in addition to Bill right now, is that when I started this show, I came out with a message that was, uh, you are not alone. And uh, all of you have told me the same thing back. And uh, I'm grateful to all of you. I know Bill is as well. And with that, this is the Jack Spirico today along with Bill Wilson of Midwest Permaculture, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.